welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Everybody, I'm Dave. I'm a sexaholic. Could we uh, open this meeting with a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer? Serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. And wisdom to know the difference. I'm here to uh, introduce Mike. The, the regular person isn't here at this at this time, but um, I like Mike from Rochester, and so uh, I was kind of there when when Mike showed up on the scene. And uh, both of us are still there on the scene, and. Uh, it certainly uh, speaks to the, the power of this program. And uh, Mike's come a long way, um, and I'm sure you'll hear uh, a lot about that as he, uh, his story unfolds. So with that, I'm going to give you Mike, and if, if, he, <clears throat> if he finishes on time, maybe we'll have some time for comments. But uh, if not, then we'll, uh, we'll end at 2. I think he's supposed to be finished at uh, 3.20, something like that. So with that, I'll give you Mike. My name's Mike, and I'm a sexaholic. Hi, Mike. Ah, well, my, yeah, my, is this good? Okay. My sponsor pro- uh, made me promise not to write anything down, and I had a suspicion he might be uh, listening when I spoke, and here he is right next to me, so uh, I, uh, you know, so I, I didn't write anything down, and so I don't, uh, you know, I I don't really know what's going to happen. I did speak with, uh, had to admit to my sponsor earlier today that uh, I was feeling kind of fearful. Just wanted to turn it over because uh, I, I, I'm one of those people who wants to make an impression. And uh, I, I want to want everyone to think well of me. And uh, I, I especially, uh, one of the... the the things I do is I tr- I sometimes compare myself with others, and I've heard some the people speaking at this conference. They've all blown me away with their their well honesty, open mindedness, and willingness, and especially having that quality that's been so hard for me to come by called humility. And I uh, so I thought I needed to uh, to um, somehow measure up to that standard and. Uh, so Dave said, um, why? All you know is your own story. You're the one that lived it. No one else can tell your story. So uh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you my story, uh, the way it happened to me. And it may be that you won't relate to all of it, but that's okay. Um, I, uh, I'm here to... to um, I'm here because they, they asked me and I wanted to serve. I would like to, to uh, say a little prayer to start. 
Dear God, thank you so much for this beautiful day, this wonderful conference, and all these good people who are now a part of my life. I ask you to give me the words that you would have me say, and especially the words that may help at least one person, either here today or listening on the tape. And I ask you to free me from the bondage of self. Uh, and uh, free me from my ego lust. And, and let me just have the honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness to say what you would have me say. Amen. So as I said... My name is Mike, and today I'm a very grateful sexaholic. I'm just thrilled to be here at this conference and uh, amazed to be sitting at this little table uh, facing you all. I don't know how that happened. That wasn't what I planned uh, in my life. Uh, I had all kinds of plans, and... Uh, my plan for my life didn't work out the way I planned. About ten years ago, I had decided that the way out of my dilemma, which was my uh, my loneliness, my disconnection from other people, uh, and uh, my uh, my feelings of inadequacy was that I was going to um, I would try and be uh, I, I would I wanted to join a religious order because then I thought I would be good enough uh, good enough for God to be a part of my life. And uh, at this point, I wasn't focused on my uh, my lust problem because, you see, I thought I had that beat. I'd been uh, what we call sexually sober for going on three years. And although I can tell you now I was still insane, um, I wasn't, uh, that didn't, that didn't seem like a problem in my life. And so what I did was I decided that before I joined this, this, uh, cloistered order that I would, uh, go on a trip and, and, uh, kind of, I may as well use up my bank account. And so I did that and, uh, I went on a trip to Europe and I visited a lot of beautiful places and, um, museums and, and churches and everything. But it seemed like that the arrangements that I made to meet people at each of these places I was traveling alone always fell through, and I was left alone. And believe me, at that time, I was not comfortable being by myself. And uh, although I uh, was trying very hard not to lust, and I didn't want to act out, uh, at the end of three weeks... I found myself acting out in a public place. This is after three years of, of, um, 
of sobriety. And I didn't know how it happened. I can relate to what one of the speakers talked about a, as a uh, an essay blackout. I didn't know how I got there. I didn't know how it happened. All I could see was that that my that something had gone miserably awry, and I somehow made it back home. And my life was in was in shambles, really. Uh, I I didn't know what to do. You see, by that time, in uh, in October of 1989, I used up all my options. I had um, I'd been to the the psychologists, the psychiatrists, the social workers about my problem with depression. And uh, I sought the help of uh, church people, and I, and none of them could fix me. And now this this new career that I decided for myself wouldn't was not going to work out. And so what happened was I was hopeless. The. Uh, that time that I acted out was uh, October 22nd, 1989. And at that time, I thought my life was over. But looking back on that, I could see that that was a turning point. Because you see, I was finally ready to admit that I had reached a bottom. And when I got home, I made contact with a man... Um, who I met several years before as part of my church group, and uh, who had told me at first about SA. And in fact, I'll never forget that night we were going on a, re- a church retreat, and I picked him up from the bus station. We were winding up a, a, a mountain road late at night. It was very dark. It was a time for confidences. And uh, he turned to me and said, you know, uh, I'm in SA. So I said to him, what is that? And he said, Sexaholics Anonymous. So I took that in for a minute and I said, uh, well, that's good. And I said, and I'm glad to know that there's a place to go for people like you. <laughs> and uh, you see, I wasn't ready for that at that time. Anyway, so I, at this point, I called this man and I and I said to him, "It's time I'm ready." He said, "Ready for what?" Well, I'm ready for SA. He said, "Oh, okay." I said, "Can you put me in touch?" Yeah, I'll have somebody call you. So I waited a couple of weeks, nothing happened, and I called Bill back and said, "What happened?" I didn't get a phone call, and he said, "You mean you were serious?" So uh, things happened pretty quickly after that, and. Uh, Somebody called me, and uh, I found myself waiting outside a restaurant in Rochester, in downtown Rochester, and I was looking in, watching these two guys sit in the uh, in the garden room of the restaurant eating salad. And um, they told me that I had to come. The guy told me on the phone I needed to come for an interview. That's how we uh, screen new members in Rochester, and. 
So I watched them eating that, and I'll never forget this moment. I had the distinct feeling that if I walked forward, that my whole life was going to change. And I wasn't sure at that moment that I wanted that. So I just about decided that I wasn't going to do that, and I found myself saying, Hi, my name is Mike. I don't know how I got over there, uh, but um, things did begin to change. They took me across the street to a meeting at the Old Christ Church on East Avenue in Rochester. And uh, while we were walking across the street, I said, uh-oh, now you're really in for it. I am saying to myself, and I thought about all the things that I had done uh, in my sexaholic career, and I made a quick checklist of the things that I was going to admit and the things I was not going to tell them. And... Uh, when we got there, we we all sat around in a circle, and there were five or eight guys. And uh, they surprised me because they went around the circle introducing themselves, and then each one gave uh, a list of what we call a litany of of the things he was powerless over. And one by one, I heard all the things that I was never going to tell. I don't remember if I talked at that first meeting. Um, I do remember that for the, those first few weeks, I didn't want to talk. And I also didn't want to tell about what I was powerless over. So I, um, my pattern was to arrive late and leave early because I knew at the end of the meeting that they would all hold hands and say the Lord's Prayer. And I didn't know where they'd been. And I didn't want to touch anybody. <laughs> So uh, so I didn't talk, and the people in my home group can't, uh, can't quite believe that today. They say they've been making up for that ever since. But there were a group of people that were important to me in my early sobriety, and they, they didn't have last names, but they all had occupations. And there was, uh, there was Pizza Tony and uh, John the Barber. And, and, and all the rest of them. And I was amazed that they all had so long in sobriety. They had all, they all had more sobriety than me. So, uh, but they, uh, they took me under their wing and we seemed to be, uh, go on a lot of cookouts and, um, and outings and hang out together. And that's what I needed. It had been a long time since I had been a part of uh, anything. I want to backtrack a little and tell you about w- what happened before that. Um, from the time I was little, I never really felt like I belonged. I felt like I didn't belong to my family. Uh, I didn't belong with the, 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 in the neighborhood. I, didn't, I just didn't fit in. And I remember at about maybe age five or six, I figured it out and I went to my mom and I demanded, I'm adopted, aren't I? Uh, that's it. That's, I figured it out. And she said, no. She laughed and she said, I was there. I remember. <laughs> so that wasn't it. Uh, but, uh, but I remember having that feeling of, uh, of, I was always observing other people and they were always relaxed and having fun and I was, I was trying. I was trying to fit in. I was, uh, um, 
And it just never worked. I was apart from uh, and I didn't know how to make that I didn't know how to make that go away. Uh, as I got into my teenage years, I started being fascinated by um, nude pictures, and I found I observed some kids in the woods one day. Uh, reading a magazine and giggling, and when they left, I went and saw what they were looking at. Uh, it was a nudist magazine, very tame by, you know, what I came to know later, but, um, and I don't know how old I was, eight or nine maybe, but I took that magazine and I, I covered it with plastic and I saved it in a hollow log, and that was my first stash. Somehow I knew that it was not okay to take it home. Somehow I knew that I wanted it for me and I was not going to leave it where I found it. So all those all those things were present right from the beginning. Um, later when that fell apart, my, my pornography was um, black and white photos of Greek statues in the Encyclopedia Britannica. It didn't take much then. To, to get me started. And uh, so, uh, so I, I, anyway, I went along not, not fitting in and not feeling a part of. And, uh, and I had the secret that I had to not tell anybody. And I didn't want anybody to get too close or they might find out. So I was busy keeping the whole world at arm's length. I, I didn't want to tell any of the other boys my age. Uh, that I, uh, that I had this thing called, uh, the, this uncontrollable lust. Although I didn't know what the word for it was. And I certainly didn't want to tell any girls about it, or my parents. So, uh, it, so along in high school I, uh, I tried to make friends but didn't know really how to go about it. I, Well, when my sexaholism really took off, I think, was when I went away, away to college. And uh, there, finally, I found some pornography, which I was able to keep. And I started at age 18. I, I first masturbated. And right from the first, it was something I was not, I had no control over. And from then on, it had, it had to become a daily occurrence. I went back to that school long, not long ago for a, a reunion and uh, met some of those people that I was so afraid of back then. And it seems like they've changed an awful lot over the years. Well, maybe they have. But uh, it felt great to be able to meet them and, and, and put out my hand to them. Um, one of the things I that uh, I was... that very shameful about for a long time was that in my early teens I, I molested a little boy on my paper route that I was assigned to babysit and I was uh I didn't know why I did that. I didn't really want to do it. It wasn't about sex. But it just happened. It it was this awful feeling that there was this uh ungovernable power controlling me that that I, I was powerless over. So, uh, so I had that too for a long time.
Let's see. Uh, when I, um, after I uh, left college, I decided that I wanted to be an actor, and I decided I would go to acting school and learn how to do that. When I was uh, when I was on the stage, I felt like I knew what to do. The lines were all written out. I knew what to say. Uh, I knew how to move. I was never comfortable being me, but I was comfortable being this character. So I uh, so I went to this school, and uh, but things didn't quite turn out as I expected. I tried to. At this point, um, have uh, affairs with some of my classmates, and somehow or other, they always ended disastrously. And I, I remember one day it was in the spring, and another one of these uh, these affairs had just ended, and I was sitting under a tree that was full of flowers. And the whole world was beautiful, and it was a bright, sunny day. And the feeling in me was black despair. I was so at odds with the rest of the world. I remember I sat down under this tree and cried. And that was my first experience, I think, um, with the first step, knowing that I was completely powerless over me. I... um I basically flunked out of that school and uh, I let all my courses go and came back to Rochester where I decided it would be a good job, um, good thing to take a job in a, in a health club, good place for a sexaholic. And it did provide a lot of uh, opportunities for voyeurism. And, uh, and, Although, interestingly, that was one job I never got fired from, though I should have been. Uh, but at this point, now I had my own car, and uh, there was another chapter in powerlessness because I, uh, I was, I can remember leaving a family gathering or some group of friends, people that I knew, in, at night. And I would be going home from there, and I would intend to turn the car one way, and the car would turn the other direction um, towards downtown, and I would end up cruising. Uh, I I couldn't stand being by myself in the car, and I always want I just wanted to have somebody sitting next to me. And so I looked for people that I could pick up, hitchhikers, people walking along the road. Anyone would do. And I just wanted to talk to them. I just wanted to have somebody in the car. But somehow it always turned sexual. And when I would end up acting out with with another person, uh, I just felt dirty and degraded. And I, at that point, I couldn't go home. I felt too bad to go home. I had to I had to somehow feel better before I went home. 
So I went out cruising again. And that cycle continued for hours and hours that day and, and maybe the next day. Uh, I ended up being a periodic drunk, what I've come to understand is periodic. And, uh, that's what I think of today when I think about powerlessness. I remember praying while I was driving, God, let me go home. And I couldn't go home. I didn't have that power. So, uh, those are some experiences of, of my acting out in powerlessness that I, that I remember today. And, and I, I thank you for listening to them. I, I need to keep them fresh to remember where I was. Because although lust is, is less powerful today in my life, I could be back there in a minute. I could be back there very quickly. Uh, it's hard for me to travel. Um, meeting new people is always kind of difficult. But uh, it's a lot better than it was. So let's see. Uh, my first year in recovery was an eventful one. I finally started going to more than just one meeting a week. I went to one meeting a week for a while because that was going to be enough. And then I ended up going to another one. We had five meetings in Rochester at the time uh, where they had sobriety chips and this uh, man gave me a, a sobriety chip and a big bear hug and said, keep coming back. And it was Dave here. And I remembered that. It was one of the first experiences of clean human contact that I'd had in a long time. Uh, so I started going to a few more meetings, and I heard people talking about sponsors. Well, I didn't need a sponsor because I was going to do it on my own. I was, uh, you know, I was smarter than the rest of you, and I would just buy the book and figure it out. So, uh, but I heard people talking about sponsors, and eventually my uh, perverse brain said to me, well, if they can have a sponsor, so can you. So I decided that I'd make a list of all the people I wanted to be my sponsor. Five or six, maybe, uh, of the, the, the higher-ups in, in SA and, uh, you know, in the superstructure there. And uh, so I made this list, and I went to each of them in turn with my list, and I said, uh, okay, now you're number two. Uh, would you be willing to be my sponsor? I, I would like to have a sponsor. And uh, one after another, they very kindly uh, refused. And they had, you know, some of them were, uh, they were going out of town or they had just taken on a new sponsee or whatever it was. Uh, but they all said, well, have you thought of Michael? And Michael was somebody that I hadn't thought of. He was not on the, the, the top list. Uh, he was not on the A list of sponsorship. And uh, I, I, I didn't want to... Uh, I didn't want to go there. But uh, when finally they all said the same thing, I called this man up. And he said, well, sure, let's talk about it. Now, who are you again? And uh, so right there, I, I got the feeling that the sponsorship thing was going to have to do with ego puncturing. <laughs> and I was right. Uh, so uh, Michael ended up being my first sponsor. And... Uh, He's no longer in the program today. I pray for him. Uh, I have his book still. But uh, he taught me a lot. 
And he he told me to call him, give him a call. So I did. I called him the first week, and when I saw him the next week, he said, thanks. Thanks for the call. Uh, you need to call more. And every time I saw him, he would tell me to call more until I was calling every day. So now why didn't he just say that off the bat? I didn't know. So I ended up calling this man every day, and I would pour out my woes of how the world was treating me. Uh, and what can you believe what somebody said to me today? And uh, he didn't say too much. He said, uh, he would say, how is your first step coming? And did you pray today? And I'll see you at a meeting. And uh, the uh, that went on for a while. At the at the end of about nine months, uh, one day Michael said, "I can't be your sponsor anymore." And shortly after that, he uh, he left the city and left the program. So. Uh, I was devastated because he was the first person in a long time I'd, I'd built a relationship with and I didn't know what to do. I realized, I, it forced me to the realization that, that for me, he was SA. He was my connection with SA. And, um, I learned something very important though. I learned that I can't base my, my program on one person on the sobriety of another person. And I knew I needed to get another sponsor. And this time Dave was available. So I'm grateful for that. Um, The steps had played a big part in my recovery. I, uh, I came into a, a group and a fellowship in Rochester where they talk about steps a lot. And, uh, my home, my acting out career as a first step, um, for both sponsors, actually. I started all over again with Dave. And I remember the first time I did that with my, my first sponsor, and I read that to him. No, excuse me. It was with another SA member. This was before I needed a sponsor. And, it was a day when this man was sick. He was coughing and sneezing. And, and at, the, at the end, he said, is that all? I need to go. And, and so I, I said, but I ran after him and I said, well, wait, wait, I need to ask you, aren't you disgusted? And he said, well, not, not particularly. Uh, you know, I've heard of that all before. And that was a new concept for me, that there could be somebody who was, uh, for whom I was not terminally unique. So, uh, and then I was asked to do a, uh, my first fifth step, which was going to be a record of all my character defects and an example of each. And I, I don't know if it was 37 or 47 pages, but when I wrote all this stuff out, and I gave this to, to Michael and, uh, he pretty much just listened, and he, uh, but at the end of that, he said, um, welcome to the human race, and he gave me a hug. And that was it. Uh, 
I destroyed that fifth step. Uh, I regret that now, but I, have a, I, I did do it again later. What I remember chiefly about that day was the weather. When I went in, it was a, a, a cold, uh, blustery day, and everything was gray. And when I came out, it was springtime, and the leaves were coming out on the, on the trees, and the birds were singing. That's what I remember. Uh, I'll never forget that part. Um, so I, I then had to do the steps all over again um, with a new sponsor. And this time we did them according to the, the big book. And uh, in a very rigorous fashion, we didn't let too much grass grow. Dave didn't let too much grass grow between uh, you know one step and the next. Uh, at the end, this time when I finished the fifth step, uh, he asked me, was there anything that I left out? And uh, I said no. And uh, we read the part in the book about, did you, uh, did you leave out any bricks? Are you trying to build mortar without sand? And he asked me if I'd done that. And I said no, that I, I, I'd given everything that I could. And um, at that point, we we knelt down and said the seven-step prayer together. And he told me to go home and spend an hour with God and go over the 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 steps to make sure I hadn't let it, anything out. And there started to be a new peace in my life. Today, my life is is so different than I expected. I was always looking for some kind some kind of 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 fame and glory that would lift me up out of my depression and out of um who I thought it was uh out of my unworthiness and uh make people like me and uh make God like me. Because I thought I was uh, unworthy, alone, and afraid. As it says in our white book, that's how I felt. And I didn't know how that was going to happen. I thought it was going to happen by by uh, by a uh, some kind of public career, uh, by making a lot of money, by being important. And... Uh, Today, I don't have any of those things. I thought that it would come from, um, you know, owning property, having a family, and today I don't have any of those things. But I have uh, a serenity that I never expected to have, that I never knew existed really, Uh, and I have a purpose in life. My purpose is to be of maximum service to God and others. And uh, so today, uh, and today I I belong. I um, I'm a member of my family. I'm invited to family gatherings. I'm included in things. I'm a member of my community. Uh, I uh, do volunteer service, and I was uh, I was even given an award for that. 
I'm a member of my church and I do service work for my church. Uh, I'm even a, a member. I even do things for fun. Um, there was a time. There was a, a time a few years ago when my when my sponsor said I, I must have been moaning that day again, and the sponsor said to me, "Well, you know, you need a hobby." I thought, "A hobby? What? What?" What could that be? And he said, "Well, why don't you go to the library and do some research and and get back to me and and get a hobby." So, uh, but not long after that, I was riding a bike and found a a yard full of flowers, and I was introduced to these flowers called daylilies, and I uh, I joined a club and. Uh, Started try, uh, getting a few of these plants to grow, and now I'm a member of this club, and I'm uh, I'm actually the librarian for this club. So that's you know, so I so that's how important I am today. Uh, so I, I I do have friends outside the program today too. Um, so today I feel a part of, and. Um, it's because of you people that I do. It says in uh, the big book, I believe, that it seemed that I should have become part of my own family, should have felt comfortable with my own family first and then with a newcomer in the program. But that's not the way it happened. Um, and that's been true for me. In, in trying to reach out to others and help other people, I've, uh, I've been able to connect with uh, with the human race and to be comfortable with myself. I remember uh, my sponsor telling me, now, when a newcomer comes to the meeting, after the meeting you make a beeline for that guy, you give him your phone number, you ask for his number, and you say you, you, you'll see him at the next meeting. And that's something that I've tried to practice over the years um, with service work and sponsorship. My first service job was being the coffee maker in my home group and I remember uh, standing in the having this little moment when I was standing in the supermarket with a fistful of coupons thinking wow I'm the coffee maker for my group (laughs) so uh, the uh, uh, the literature of our program may, uh, means uh, a great deal to me, and um, I promised I wouldn't write anything down, but I, uh, there were some things I was reading that that really struck me that I wanted to share with you. Um, step seven, the sponsor some time ago said, I think you need to look at step seven. This was a couple of years ago, and and uh, since then, um, step seven has been growing on me. It's one of the things it says in, in all these strivings, so many of them well-intentioned. Our crippling handicap had been our lack of humility, and that's uh, that is truly the the uh, has been truly the case for me that I I think of myself as the center of the universe and everyone else is supposed to revolve around me, which is the opposite of me serving you. So, and then it also says, 
Nearly all AAs have found that unless they develop much more of this precious quality than may be acquired just for sobriety, they still haven't much chance of becoming truly happy. Over the past couple of years, I've had some reverses in my life uh, that have been, again, occasions for humility and for letting go and turning it over. And uh, I never would have thought that through humility, um, that by embracing these, I could have new freedom and new happiness. But um, it says also in step seven that, that we want to gain a vision of humility as the avenue of true freedom of the human spirit. And uh, today I have a measure of that freedom that I can share with people. I can come to a conference and stick out my hand and meet, and meet people. And uh, I, I'm so blessed by that. Being in your presence makes me want to be a better person. And I feel like I'm at my best when I'm with you and when I'm trying to serve you. So, uh, I guess I'll, I'll end with this. I have a little something to read. That I, uh, I was at the Dr. Bob house yesterday and I got to pray in the room where Dr. Bob and the new, the new man did the third step prayer. And I prayed for everybody at this conference and I particularly prayed that somebody that was hearing me today would, would, um, would be helped by what I had to say. And, uh, so there was a little poem on the wall that I, and I copied it down and I wanted to, I want to share that with you. It says, I sought my God and he eluded me. I sought my soul and it I could not see. I sought my brother and found all three. Thanks for letting me serve you today. Sexaholic. I guess we're we're out of time now. So um, thank you all. And, and would you, for those who care, would you like to help me close, help us close with the Lord's prayer? I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.